Good morning. Let's find our seats. It's good to be together. Wow, we get rid of the kids and the place feels empty. But with the kids, it's crazy and, and loud and nice. It's, it's just a wonderful thing. Not that you guys can't get crazy and loud, just, you know, it's a little different. It's good to worship together this morning. Good to be together as God's church, as God's people. I'm Pastor Ron, one of the pastors here, and welcome. We start a new series today in the book of Esther, and that's always exciting. And um, I don't know if you've studied Esther, but there's just a lot of fun things to study there. Have you ever heard of the butterfly effect? Yeah, butterfly effect says that the, the, the flapping of a little butterfly, like in Brazil or Ecuador or somewhere, can have effects all the way around the globe, right? Which makes total sense. L- let me just tell you how this might work. Yeah, you're, you're laughing. Okay, so, so we have this theory. So a butterfly in Ecuador is disturbed by a child running through a field. The butterfly quickly flies up and causes hundreds more to follow. The air molecules under their wings are disturbed and pushed down and out from the butterflies. This slight change in pressure causes birds in the area to go on alert and end up eating the little butterflies. Now the birds are in flight and an entire flock follows them, and this slightly affects the air currents in the area to shift them ever slightly south. That change in the air current causes the northern air current to also move slightly south, now we have, have air currents encountering different temperatures of air, which causes turbulence. This turbulence, along with the rapid warming of air that has come south, now begins to form a storm. Following me? Totally plausible. As this storm forms, clouds gather, changing the ground temperature in Central America, and more clouds begin to form and air currents shift. Now planes begin to change their course to avoid the gathering storm. These weather changes now collect steam over the Gulf of Mexico as it hits the warmer water, and the storm becomes a hurricane hitting land in Texas. Our Texas friends are then fed up with the weather there, and and along with our friends from Oklahoma and Kansas City, they all move back to California. (laughs) But then the added cars on West Street causes a quick stop at Chapman, and I get hit from behind. All because of a butterfly. Now we laugh. This is actually a a scientific or quasi-scientific theory that is presented. In fact, movies have been made about this. Stories have been made about this. So this is something that's talked about a lot. But the idea is that, and, and what they're getting at, is that one little event can have a ripple effect on a whole series of events that causes some radical change somewhere else in the world. And imagine, though, the, the pressure, because then this is usually used to say, well, we should have personal responsibility because the things you do could cause disaster on this planet. And I'm not, I'm not going environmental. Don't, don't even go there with me. But this is where the theory goes. And it ends up, if you think that your actions might disrupt the whole globe, that's a, that's a heavy weight to carry. That's a lot to carry. And so when we start thinking of this, our our minds can be boggled by, okay, how does this event affect this event? How does this event affect this event? And and we can carry this fear that if I do something wrong, I ruin life for someone else. You know, we we see this on a small scale sometimes when we think of um, getting married and finding a spouse. Well, what if I marry the wrong person and God only has one person for them? Then, then now I've caused this ripple effect that nobody gets their person and God's plans are just ruined. You laugh because you know that can't happen. We can't ruin God's plans. 
And this morning as we come to the book of Esther, we are going to talk a little bit about a butterfly effect. And and here's the thing. Actions that happen at this point in history and actions that, that happen at this point on the globe do affect actions elsewhere on the globe and do affect actions further in history. The good news is, though, you and I don't have to worry about that. We don't have to carry that weight because our God is sovereign. Our God is in control, and through His providence, He is orchestrating all of those events to accomplish His plan. And you and I don't have to bear the weight of that. That's the message of Esther. That we see God's providence and His work all through the book as He orchestrates events, and and part of this is orchestrating the event to protect the line of Jesus Christ to protect the line of the coming Messiah so we will have Messiah, so salvation will come and God's plan will not be foiled. We saw in the verse that that Joshua read that maybe he'll change and use other people (laughs) if we're not obedient, but his plan will go forward. And so today as we come to Esther, we we start with an introduction to Esther and we, we loudly proclaim that our God is sovereign and you're going to hear that. In fact, in my outline... For, for Esther, every week starts with, God uses this to accomplish this. God uses this to accomplish this. And so that's a theme that you're going to hear over the next 10 or so weeks as we think through what does it mean to live our Christian lives under a sovereign God, a God that is accomplishing those purposes, that is using all of these little events to affect the future, but he is superintending all of those events to come out the way he has planned them to come out in his glorious plan. Now, now there are times, and, and Esther really brings to, to, to the forefront, there are times that we don't see all that happening, right? We know in our head God is at work through all circumstances, right? And he's executing his plan. Do you always see it? No, there are events that you don't see. Now, when, when, when life is good and we're, we're putting hashtag blessed all over everything, then we can see it and we think, oh yes, God is good. He is working His plan. And, and we tend to judge His plan based on, am I getting what I want? That's an awful way to judge God's plan. That's a narrow-minded, just local, self-centered way to judge His plan. But what about when we don't see God? What about when things are difficult? What about when we have no idea how the circumstances we are facing could even fit in his plan? How can you use this, God? And we're not seeing any indication that he's working and we just don't see it and God seems unseen. And that also is the story of Esther as the only book in the Bible that never mentions the name of God. And I would argue intentionally so to teach us this lesson. And we'll get to that later this morning. But the story of Esther speaks to it. And, and maybe, you don't, maybe you don't remember the story. We don't always study some of the, these books. And, but this is part of our commitment at Village to study the whole counsel of God's Word. And so we often switch between New Testament and Old Testament. And Esther is in the Old Testament just before Psalms. And so we want to take some time and study this. I don't know if you, anyone Princess Bride fans? Yeah, okay. The classic definitive comedy movie ever. Um, not that I'm a fan. Um, they are talking about redoing it, which is an awful idea. But okay, that's a bunny trail. <laughs> Do you remember in the, in the Princess Bride, the grandpa's coming and he's reading this story to his grandson. And his grandson I don't want to. I don't want to hear a story, Grandpa. This is boring. I want to play video games. 
outside. <laughs> and the grandpa says, no, no, this is an exciting story. And remember how he sells it? This story has pirates and has sword fighting and it has treason and it has a castle. And, and, and I don't think he mentioned the princess in that part, but... Um, He's selling the story, and the the, the kid's like, ooh, because those are elements of a good story, right? Esther's a a little like that. Not like the story of Princess Bride, but it is a good story of how God is working. And it has all the elements that should capture us and bring us in. In fact, when you look at the literary style of Esther, it is brilliant writing. And it is brilliant storytelling. And, And so in Esther, just to remind ourselves of the summary of this, Esther comes to a people that have lost a battle and have been taken off into captivity. And and they're trying to figure out life in that captivity. And then we zero in on the kingdom of the time and a queen is is dethroned and we have a, a young girl who is orphaned. And then as a young lady overcomes timidity to save her people and become queen. We have stories of, of treason and plots of treason uncovered. We have people that, that were heroes that were forgotten. We have gallows. And that alone should get us to read Esther. <laughs> All of the young men are like, yeah. <laughs> we have gallows that were intended for one person and used on another in a brilliant reversal. We have irony in Esther. We have comedy. We have reversals. All of this as God is acting. We have villains like Haman who let his hatred for Mordecai spill over into an attempt to kill all Jews. We have an attempt at ethnic cleansing, not unlike the Holocaust. All of this in one story in ten short chapters. But what we're going to see is that God has been putting, and throughout Esther, He is putting all the pieces into place. He's putting all the people into place right where he needs them for a time like this we read this morning in Esther 4. Things that he was moving around that at the time he was moving them around, the characters or the people involved, because it's a true story, the people involved would not understand why is this happening. But God knew. And God knew what was going to happen in the future. And God knew where he needed people to be. And God knew what he needed the circumstances to be. And so in Esther, we come to that story. And we want to dig into that story with today being a background week. And sometimes I'm asked and sometimes I wonder to myself, why do I do an intro week to a book of the Bible? And for me, this is really vital for helping us as a congregation know how to study God's Word. Because when we come to God's Word, we don't just want to take a verse here and a verse there, our coffee cup verses, and build theology out of a single verse We want to look at the context of a book and we want to look at what God is trying to say in the course of history in this book, to whom it's written to. And so we, all of these things help us understand a book and understand just how important this is. If we didn't have the context of a coming Messiah through the line of David, we wouldn't understand the importance of of what Satan is trying to do here in destroying a people and destroying the people of God. We wouldn't understand the importance of God's providence. And so today we, is that intro week. And we'll look at some history. We'll look at some maps because there's always maps with Pastor Ron on an intro week to try to help us understand what is going on historically. My goal this morning also is to give us some broad themes of Esther. 
So as we study the individual chapters, we sort of know where to hang the things we're reading. We sort of know how to process the story that we're reading. And so this is just what I would encourage you to do every time you read the Bible, every time you come to a book of the Bible. You don't have to come to a sermon to hear a background. If you have a study Bible, read the introduction to your study Bible. You have the resources to do what we're going to do today. Now, don't leave because of that, but stay with me. But we, you have the resources. Grab any good commentary, and it'll give you some of the background, some of the things that we're going to be talking about today. So turn with me. Let's just look at the first couple verses of Esther today. Esther chapter 1. Esther chapter 1. We'll look at the first three verses just to get some background in the setting of the book. If you don't have a Bible, there's a black one under a chair right around you. Welcome you to take that. And if you don't have a Bible at home, please take that home. We want you to have God's Word to be able to, to study God's Word. If you, if you're using Uversion, that app, we do have an event up with all of the notes and things so you can follow along that way. If you just go to the lower right corner to the three little bars, you can get to events and you can see it that way. But Esther chapter one, verses one through three. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa the citadel, In the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and the governors of the provinces were before him. That's what we're going to cover today. The profound truths that are in those three verses. He's setting a stage. And like any good story, we we set the stage. We have to know what's going on. And and right from the start, now in the days of Ahasuerus, who's who's the king, the, the Persian king, Just a quick note, Ahasuerus was also called Xerxes. And so those two names are the same person. Xerxes um, was the Greek form of the the name, and Ahasuerus was the Hebrew form of the name. How those two work together, that's up to you to study. But they, they are the same person, the same name. So we're looking at King Xerxes here of the Persian Empire, and it starts with now in the days. And that is a phrase that the Bible often used. The Holy Spirit inspires this phrase that signifies this is history. This is historically accurate. This is true. And there's all kinds of study you can read on, is this history? Is this a fictional narrative? But, but we're going to take the Bible as it were, as, at its word, and we're going to say this is a historical narrative. This actually happened. And, and yes, it has some satire in it. It has some humor in it. But there is no compelling reason why we shouldn't take this, this book as true. It fits with the historical evidences we've seen. It fits with the archaeology. Any objections that are there are just easy to explain and just understanding the people. And so, in fact, we we have very few other works in the Bible that so accurately describe life in Persia. It's one of the ways that we know that this is accurate and this is true. And so we start now in the days of Ahasuerus. Now that again, if you're reading this, if you're, if you're a Hebrew reading this, you'd say, okay, so what were those days? Who's this guy? And we'd automatically start thinking history. And they knew their history, whereas we need to review it. And we come to, and in our minor prophets class, we talked a lot about some of this history. But if you remember, the, the kingdom of Israel ended up splitting into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. 
And the northern kingdom was taken away by Assyria. The southern kingdom lasted a little longer. But eventually King Neb, Nebuchadnezzar, with Babylon, came in and took over the southern kingdom, and Israel fell. And he took the southern kingdom, Judah, which we'll just call Israel, into captivity. Three waves, about 605 B.C., 597 B.C., 586 B.C. But, but, but by the end of that, by 586, virtually all of the Israelites were taken to Babylon and into captivity. Jerusalem had burned. The temple was gone. And the country was in ruins. Their hopes and dreams were in ruins. And King Neb, he ruled for about, or actually the Babylonian Empire ruled for about 48, 50 more years there. And, and the, the exiles, the people that were in exile are living in Babylon and in the surrounding area. And then Cyrus of the Medo-Persian Empire came in and came into Babylon. And you can read that in Daniel 5, how some of that is happening. And they take over and now there's a new king on the block. And that king is Cyrus. And we read a little bit about Cyrus in actually Daniel 6 because he also went by Darius. And so Cyrus now is the guy that that Daniel won favor with and went and checked on Daniel when Daniel was thrown in the lion's den. And so this is the Persian Empire that Esther comes to light in. In fact, the, the, the king that Esther becomes queen to is the grandson of Cyrus. And so we just aren't that far removed from Daniel at this point. Cyrus soon issues a decree, back to Daniel's time. Cyrus soon issues a decree. Jews could go home. The problem is, what's at home? You have a bunch of stones on the ground, a bunch of burned out buildings. There is not much there. And so this process starts where people start slowly in a couple of waves going back to Jerusalem, going back to Israel to try to rebuild. And that's where we see Ezra eventually takes a group. First, before that, a group goes and starts to rebuild the temple. Ezra goes and they try to, to rebuild the temple. And in fact, the first six chapters of Ezra happened before Esther, and the rest of Ezra happens after Esther. So that's the time frame that we're in. So Cyrus issues this decree. Now, now we can think Cyrus is just a really nice guy. He actually did it for political reasons. He felt like the people you capture, if you can earn their favor, build them back up, let them govern themselves, and collect a ton of taxes from them, you were better off. And so he's trying to enable them to do that. But many stayed because life was just better in Babylon. You could have a house. In fact, many of the Jews at the time then moved a little bit further east to Susa, which is one of the capitals of the Persian Empire, the largest winter capital um, out of four that were the, the seat of power of the Persian Empire. And we see that in those verses, right? And Ahasuerus, who's now a a couple generations removed, reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces. And we see that he did this in Susa, the capital, or the citadel. And so if we put that map up, Jeremiah, can we put that map up? Just to give you a sense of what is happening, because that is so clear. (laughs) Um, the, The... the Persian Empire here is mentioned here. It goes all the way from southern Egypt down here, Kush or Ethiopia, it's mentioned there. And it comes all the way over to India where this river spreads out. And so that is the, the width of the Persian Empire. 
And it comes all the way up here, and there's a yellow line that you can barely see. And that is the Persian Empire. Over here is Israel. And, and so you see Jerusalem here. And then Babylon is here on the other end of the Fertile Crescent. But then Susa, who, which is now modern-day Iran, um, is the capital of the Persian Empire. And so many of the exiles had also moved to Susa because they could make a life there. At this point, many of them were born in exile, so they never had been to Israel. They never knew their homeland. And so then we have the next major king. There was a a, a short reign of of Cambyses, but the next major king of Persia is Darius I. This is different from Cyrus. So this is, in fact, Darius I married Cyrus' daughter because if you marry right, you get the throne. And so he comes in and he conquers more territory and, and he really is responsible for spreading the Persian Empire and doing a lot of powerful things with military might. But then Darius and Queen Atassa, their son is Xerxes, which we come to Esther. And so that's the time frame. We're, we're after Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We're in the middle of Ezra. We're right before Nehemiah. Incidentally, Nehemiah also served the king, the, the next king, and he served in Susa. And so this is all part of the same story, and those books are just wonderful to read together. Xerxes came in, and he started well, well, according to them. And he had this powerful army. There was an uprising in Babylon. He killed them off. There was an uprising in Egypt. He went and subdued Egypt. And so he started with strong might. And then he had this idea that let's go take out Greece. And this is where you get some of the stories. And and he has this major campaign to Greece, which interestingly enough, chapter 1 of Esther is before that campaign. And the rest of Esther is after that campaign. And so here we have Xerxes goes off to Greece and he gets his tail whooped. In fact, there's movies of of some of the things in this. The, The 300 the 300 Spartans, that's part of this, per- they're, they're holding off this Persian army that's coming under Xerxes. And so that's where we're at in history. And so when we, when we look at these verses, India to Ethiopia, or Cush, some of your translations say, um, it, it's telling you just how broad the Persian Empire is. When it says 127 provinces, again, these wordings are try to, trying to give us an idea of the extent of Xerxes' reign, or Ahasuerus. This was a powerful king over the most powerful empire on the planet at the time. He was a, he was a big man on campus. And, and that is the setting of Esther, and that helps us understand it. In fact, as you look through those three verses, the author is setting up the sovereignty issue right from the start. Because he's setting up this earthly king that thinks he's sovereign over everything. And so you get words like he reigned from India to Ethiopia, which is a term of sovereignty. Sits on his royal throne and the extent of his kingdom. All this is to show that he thought he was the one that made all the decisions and made all the plans for the planet. But he's going to find out he's wrong. Because it's setting up the, the reversal, the, the duel between he and God, between the forces of evil and, the, the, and, and, and God, the Almighty who created everything. And it's not even close when it comes to who wins. 
And so that's some of the historical background. A couple of other things in verse 3, you see that... Um, Xerxes has just finished solidifying the throne. He's celebrating, probably has all the armies in front of him as they're about to leave to Greece to have this parade and celebration of the upcoming victory of what's going to happen, the one that failed. All along the way, we see that Jews in exile could often rise to prominence. Daniel, right? Daniel rose to prominence. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they, they, they rose to prominence. They were some of the rulers of the time. Ezra rose to prominence and, and served in, in the, the capital. Nehemiah rose to prominence. And so here we have another story in the line of those stories with Esther and Mordecai taking places in prominence because God put them there. In each case, God placed them there and their character and their integrity aided that process as they obeyed God and God had his pieces in place to do his will. So the story of Esther takes place in Susa, far from home, but with a people trying to be true to their heritage, but not sure what that looks like in captivity. In fact, in Esther 3, verse 8, we read, Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people. So they're still trying to be different. And they do not keep the king's laws so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. And this is Haman, the evil villain that's trying to wipe them out. But he knows they're different. This people is trying to live differently. Now, were there compromises? Certainly there were compromises. Were there difficult decisions of how this looks in Babylon and Persia? Certainly. But these people were still different and trying to be different for God. And so we have the exile, and then the exile ends, and Esther takes place about 50 years after the exile ended, where people could go back. And so we're going to see the story of God protecting his people. We also, by the end of the book, see the the beginning, the origins of the Feast of Purim, or sometimes it's called Purim, and this festival that is still celebrated today. It celebrates the story of Esther and what God did through the book of Esther. So like any good story, part of our introduction is who are the main characters? And, and I would guess that you would, you would think Esther might be one of the characters in the book of Esther. You'd be right. And so Esther is one of these characters. She is a, a, a young woman who is born in exile. She, she's born into this, doesn't know life back in Israel. At a young age, she was orphaned and lost her parents. But then her cousin comes in and with his care and, and, um, responsibility comes and takes her as family and begins to care for her throughout the book we're going to see esther go from a timid young lady to a, to an intelligent powerful queen for god and for the work of god and one, one of the authors and i really liked this said she at the beginning of the book she's a victim of circumstances and we'll see words like she was taken here and done things were done to her things happened to her But by the end, things happened through her. And that was the transformation that God used in her life. We see so many hints as to her upright character early on with with phrases like she was able to win favor with those around her. And then we see her step out in courage and use her position and intelligence for Yahweh's work. Sometimes I I love studying Esther because sometimes 
I think we th- we're a little timid. And, and we're a little f- afraid to step out for God's work. We're not always as strong as we see at the end of Esther. But we're to be courageous for God like Esther was. Another character that we'll, we'll look at is Mordecai. And Mordecai in Hebrew means a little man. And so I heard one pastor often whenever Mordecai came up say, yeah, he was just a little Jewish man. Uh, we don't know if that's actually his stature because your name comes pretty early on in life. But um, Mordecai is Esther's cousin and he's acting as her father. It seems to be as we look through the book and look through everything about him, he's portrayed as an honorable man. Not a lot is given at the beginning, but in good storytelling fashion, we see his character develop. We see good leadership. We see personal strength. We see integrity. We see conviction. Right from the start, he won't bow to Haman. He won't have anything to do with what Haman wants him to do. And he's staying true to his character. And so we see his godly character and his faith shining throughout the story. And we see him as a man of compassion in chapter 2, a man of prudence in chapter 2, and integrity in chapter 3, discernment of spiritual um, uh, spiritual sins in chapter 4, wisdom in 4, and faith in 4. And so we see this as God has brought this cousin to rescue an orphaned Esther and between them to save a people. And God is moving people to where he wants them to be. Haman's wife described Mordecai as he's of the Jewish people, which tells you a lot about him. So that's sort of the good, the good guys in the story, the white hats. And then we get to the, the, the bad guys of the story, and, and we get to King Xerxes, which I've also already talked about, and that's his name in Greek. Again, we'll read a Hazarus often through Esther. And he reigns from about 486 to 465 BC. And I know you're, I'll, I'll post a timeline a little bit later this week on the website or on the, the Facebook group so you can see how this all fits. I don't remember dates. I'm reading them. But King Xerxes, like I said, built this army. He, he was ruthless. He was considered ruthless as he took out the, what he could. He was also a little bumbling. And, and and that's portrayed in Esther, that he's not always the one making decisions. He doesn't always know what to do. And maybe that was part of the defeat in Greece. We don't know. But we do know he also was just a decadent person into pleasing himself, um, self-indulgent. And so if it came down to war or a good party, he would choose the party. And, and we see that with some really long parties in the, in the book of Esther. And that a little bit became his undoing and, and how Esther was able to, to um, reach into his life and convince him. Um, he, uh, one author, uh, in fact, a historian of the time, described Xerxes as tall and handsome, an ambitious ruler and warrior. And so we see this man who's full of himself, loves pleasure, also ruthless. This is the man that somehow God has to use Esther to reach. It seems impossible, but not for the God that's sovereign over all things. Not for the God that through his providence is orchestrating all things for his plan. One of the stones that they found, they've actually unearthed a lot of um, digs and things that, that give us some of the history and the accuracy of this history. One of the inscriptions on a stone in one of Xerxes' palaces said this, I am Xerxes, the great king, the only king, the king of all countries which speak all kinds of languages, the king of this entire big and far-reaching earth, the son of King Darius, 
the Achaemenian, a Persian son of a Persian. Guys, that's pride. And that's setting himself up. But sort of gives you a flavor of who Xerxes is um, and, and what Esther was up against. The last major character, and there's certainly some smaller characters, the last major character is Haman. Now, Haman, if we're going to get into the good storytelling, Haman's the guy that every time we say his name, there should be a boo. He is the villain of the story, okay? And we need to understand that Haman is, is a very powerful man, right under King Xerxes and at his right hand. And he is the one that's sort of pulling the strings, this villain trying to destroy the Jewish people. He's an evil man intent on power, status, and killing Jews. He conspires. He's not bumbling like the king. He's arrogant. He's also a little subject to having his ego stroked and wanting some honor and recognition. In fact, that's part of his downfall is he wants the honor and recognition so much that anger consumes him when that doesn't come and he loses his little mind when it does come because he's so happy. But he's ruled by his wickedness. And so we're going to see what happens with these four characters. So much of Esther you can see in terms of reversals or um, um, duels between people, um, um, comparisons between people. And when we look at this cast, you think Esther and King Xerxes. And they are, they are the duel that's happening at the top. And we see Esther interacting with King Xerxes, interacting with the others, but one is bumbling and the other is smart and, and ha- is executing God's plan. But then we also see Haman and Mordecai sort of going at it. And we see this duel, this feud between them, and we're going to see that come to the forefront as, as both the people that are advising the people at the top. And, and so, when we read Esther, read those things and understand those things. A couple of other things in your notes. Author. We don't know. So that's an easy one. You can just put we don't know. Um, as you, so one of the ways we figure out authors is if it says who the author is. This book doesn't. And then the style of writing. Now, the, the way that it's written, we know that this probably was written by a Jew, probably very familiar with the Persian system and the Persian court system. And so some have suggested that Mordecai is the one that wrote this. And, and he could have. And because it looks as if someone is, is in an official role that has insight into what happened behind the scenes. Others, a, a, a large group of scholars, think Ezra wrote it. Because this happened in the middle of Ezra's writing. And Ezra would have been very interested in recording what happened in this could have happened. Some have suggested Nehemiah wrote it sort of in the next generation and just to record where Purim came from. Others say it could be just a court reporter at the time, a Jewish court recorder that was working in the court. We don't know, but we do know it is history. And as far as date goes, I would argue it's written pretty close to the dates in question. Because we, there's a whole lot of reasons you can study for why that is, but the writing style looks as if it's written during the Persian Empire um, and probably within a generation of the events actually happening. Um, so that's a little bit of those details. What I want to get to today is the themes, the themes of Esther. And why we talk about themes is, like I said, to give us some big picture principles that as we read the book, we don't miss the point. 
Because you could read Esther, and it's a fascinating story about a, a, a young woman that became queen. And isn't that amazing? And look what she did. So much more is happening than that in Esther, though. When we look at what God is doing in the grand flow of history and his history, his story, to eventually redeem creation back to himself. And so the first theme in your notes is God's sovereignty over everything. God's sovereignty over everything. See, God's name isn't mentioned. He only seems unseen, though. His fingerprints are on everything, on every chapter of the book of Esther. Now, you could look at it and you could say, well, that's an interesting coincidence. Well, that's an interesting coincidence. And by the time you're done with Esther, you have like 50 coincidences that you're like, how can all those be coincidences? Exactly. That's what the message of Esther is. There are no coincidences. God is sovereignly orchestrating the events of history. And and so as you read Esther, one of the thoughts that I would encourage you to do is think back to Joseph, because the two stories actually have a lot of similarities and even a lot of stylistic similarities. And Joseph is a story of God's sovereignty and using some difficult situations to save a people. Esther is the same thing. See, throughout the scheme of history, Satan is always trying to wipe out God's people. And God is always sovereignly protecting them. And so we do see the same storyline come up over and over and over. Now, we, we use the word sovereignty a lot and providence a lot. And we could go into a long definition of both. Let me just give you a brief one today. Sovereignty means that God has absolute authority and kingship over all creation. So sovereignty is actually a statement of authority. If someone is sovereign over someone else, they have authority over them, can do what they want, when they want, how they want. And so God's sovereignty is he has absolute authority. Nothing can can question God's sovereignty and kingship over all creation. At all times, you could add, for all history. And so sovereignty is, is a position of authority that God has because he created all things. Providence, and, and sometimes we use sovereignty and providence interchangeably, and I, and I think that's okay because we understand the, that they are very, very close, but, but if we had to define a little bit of a difference, providence is the beneficial outworking of God's sovereignty. So providence is sort of sovereignty in action where God actively intervenes and God then orchestrates events. One author said, Providence is the beneficial um, outworking of God's sovereignty, whereby all events are directed and disposed to bring about God's purposes of glory and good for which the universe was made. Another author said, Providence is God's attention concentrated everywhere at all times. That's a great definition of Providence. And so he has authority over all things, and providence means he's working through all things. Now, now, in, in five minutes or less, this does not mean that God causes all things. And we've talked about this, and in James we studied that God never is the author of sin. And so while, while God does not control or force all things, like he doesn't force us to sin, oh, I'm off the hook, God made me do it. No, no, we talked about that in James. But his sovereignty and providence means he already knows you're going to do it, already has a plan, and already is going to use what Satan intends for evil for his good. And nothing can interfere with that. 
And so that's a theme that is that the book of Esther is going to yell at us every week. Look at God's sovereignty. Look at God's sovereignty. Every story needs to be seen through this filter. The removal of Vashti, the queen before Esther, that was not an accident. It's hard for Esther to become queen if Vashti is still there, so God was orchestrating things in his providence. When we look at the, the plot Mordecai discovers, and it's this little paragraph we'll get to that doesn't seem like it's part of the story, and then all of a sudden later in the story we find that God uses that to, to help Mordecai and help the process along. God is at work in the book of Esther, even though his name isn't mentioned. God is the same God is at work today in our lives, even when we don't see him. See, this is why I think that the name of God isn't mentioned. We believe all scripture is God-breathed, including Esther. So if God's name isn't there, whose choice is it that it wasn't there? God's. Yeah, this wasn't an accident. Oops, another coincidence. No, no, God sovereignly did not put his name in the book of Esther to remind us and teach us that even when we are missing God, even when he seems unseen to us, even when we're blind to his work, he is still working in your life. And he is still working in history. Oh, do we need to hear this for an election coming up? That election will not foil God's plan. I don't care which side of it you're on. Yes, be involved in politics, but God's sovereignty already knows who's going to win, already has it as part of his plan, and it doesn't change anything. In fact, whoever wins is going to further God's plan. Okay? There is such a peace in that, knowing we can trust God. And so while he's not mentioned, his work is all over the place in this. It is so rare, because it's the only book, that it has to be intentional. Is God working through your circumstance? The book of Esther shouts yes. Is God unseen sometimes to us? Yeah. But just because we don't see it doesn't mean he's not working. A couple verses that that just tie into God's providence. Proverbs 20, 24. A man's steps are from the Lord. How then can man understand his way? It's a simple proverb. as, As Proverbs has pithy little statements of truth about life, just says, a man's steps are from the Lord. You think that you're controlling everything in your life? You're not. God is sovereign over all things. And so how can we really understand the impact of every day when God sees such a bigger picture? I love Romans 11, 33 and 34. I think we have it on the screen for you. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. I, Paul here, through the Holy Spirit through Paul, is just marveling at the depth of God's wisdom and knowledge. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? These speak to his sovereignty and providence. Because we don't have to worry about the butterfly effect. We don't have to worry about how this action affects 200 years from now. Now, yes, we should be responsible and take responsible actions, but those come in obedience to God, trusting that he has the bigger plan in place. And so throughout Esther, we're going to see man's effort versus God's hand. Xerxes thinks he's in control and tries to exert control. Haman tries to manipulate and take control. And and, and so much that that he is, is trusting lots and trusting his gods and thinks he has it all down. And God is just behind the scenes saying, nope, nope, this is what's going to happen. Nope, this is what's going to happen. 
And it's a beautiful story reminding us that God is sovereign. We see Satan's moves and we see God's counter moves. We'll see irony and humor, like I said, because we're going to see so many of what Satan tries to do, so many things just completely reversed by what God actually does. God's sovereignty in everything is one of our themes, and that enables us to trust him. Second theme that I already mentioned is God's protection of his people and the future Messiah's line. God's protection of his people and the future Messiah's line. There's a bigger picture, like I said, than just Esther here. And God has a plan for Jesus Christ to come to the Virgin Mary, to live a perfect life, and then to be crucified in our place, taking the punishment for our sins so that salvation can be offered to anyone who repents and believes in Christ. That's the gospel. And that's what, what the whole book is, is centered on. That's the story of the whole book. We often say, what's the story of the Bible? God redeeming creation to himself. It's the story of the Bible. And so at this moment, when genocide is on the horizon, when Satan is trying to wipe out the Jews, God says, nope. And that's enough. And he protects his people in the line of Christ. Village, that protection means not only can we trust God, but we can have peace in God. When we go through dark nights of the soul, when we don't understand why things are happening, God is sovereign but he's also protecting his plan. And so I can have peace in that. Do I really want to try to spoil God's plan? Because if I'm fighting what's happening to me, if I'm angry at God for what's happening to me, if I'm, if I'm frustrated at the dark, then I'm denying God's sovereignty and his protection. Trust God. Have peace in God. He's big enough. The third theme that you see there is, is human responsibility. Human, and we'll bring this out as we study Esther, but, but sometimes we can take God's sovereignty as a signal that we can be couch potatoes. No, that's never the case in God's word. We are called to, to obey and to take action for God. Esther and Mordecai were called to obey and take action for God. That's the human responsibility that responds to God's sovereignty. In fact, I believe God's sovereignty allows us to be bold in human responsibility. Because now I don't have to worry about the outcome. God's got that. I just have to obey God. And step out in boldness for Him. And step out in faith for Him. And so the story of God's sovereignty actually should make us get up off the couch. Should make us step out and be used for God. To talk to the neighbor about Jesus. To be a light for God at our workplace. Human responsibility we're going to see throughout this. The verse we read this morning, Esther 4.14, brings in the human responsibility. As Esther's a little timid at this point, and Mordecai is trying to, to show her and teach her that this is the time God wants her to, to step up and to reveal who she is and to do something. And he says, for if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. God's plan won't be spoiled, but you and your father's house will perish. You just won't be part of it. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. So the third theme is human responsibility. The fourth theme to look for, and this one will just fly off every page, the folly of wickedness. 
the, the humor of wickedness, the disastrous results of wickedness. You can put whatever you want there. I have the folly of wickedness. We have Haman. Thank you. <laughs> Got to get into the story. <laughs> Haman is controlled largely by hatred toward one man who he has some sort of slight, offended him in some little way. And so now he hates Haman and hates, and he wants to try to destroy a whole people. He's desperately seeking honor. He goes about these things just desperately chasing wickedness. And that blinds him to what he's doing. And it's just utter stupidity, utter folly. He doesn't even see the traps that he has set, that Esther sets. And so one of our our lessons is the folly of wickedness. That hasn't changed, guys. We can chase evil. We can chase wickedness. We can chase sin. We can chase our desires. We can chase all those things. And it's just as stupid now as it was then. It ends in just as much disaster. But we keep doing it because we let self control. Four themes that I hope we look for. God's sovereignty, God's protection, human responsibility, and the utter folly of wickedness. I'm looking forward to the next 10 weeks. Looking forward to studying this together, and I hope you are too. See, the main point of Esther, even when you can't see God's work, trust him because he always sovereignly acts and care for his people in the progression of his plan. God's acting. He's acting in your life right now, today, whether you see it or not. Trust him. Enjoy it. Enjoy the story he's writing into your life. We want to move into a time of communion, which I think is is perfect for the start of Esther because we're celebrating that salvation that God protected in the book of Esther, that line that God protected in the book of Esther. And in, in communion here, in the Lord's Supper, we take a cracker and that reminds us of the body of Christ that was hung on that cross for us in our place. We, we take the juice to remind ourselves of the blood that was spilt in payment for our sins in our place. And that offers forgiveness for sins. You know, this is a, these are symbols. There's nothing magic in these symbols, but these are symbols to remind ourselves and for us to continually show our commitment to Christ. And so if you're here today and you don't know Christ, I am so glad you're here. I hope that you hear the good news and what he has done. But don't take this yet until you've decided to follow Christ because this is a symbol of I am choosing to follow Christ. I am choosing to remember him with my life. But if you've done that, please partake with us and remember what Christ has done and that he is always at work. Let's pray together. Lord God, thank you for the cross. Thank you that you are orchestrating all of history to to come to that point to bring salvation to all peoples, the offer of salvation to all peoples, Lord. That if we follow you, we can have eternal life, Lord, an abundant life, a life that is indwelt by your spirit, a life where that sin is no longer controlling us and the folly of that sin, but following you as our guide. Lord, as we go through Esther, challenge us to trust you. Challenge us to see your hand where we don't normally see it. Lord, build our faith and our trust and our peace as we follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.